any money would want to go to. And the voice of the Lord comes to Jonah and says, go to Nineveh. And Jonah says, Nineveh, violence, decapitation, or worse, or Tarshish, lying on a banana lounge, soaking up the rays of the sun, lathering myself in coconut oil, because I didn't know about skin cancer in those days, sipping on a martini, and he decides, I think I'll go to Tarshish, and he flees the voice of the Lord. Now, you might be the same as me, but there are many times when the voice of the Lord comes to me and says, go. When the voice of the Lord comes to me and says, Graham, will you pursue deeper discipleship? Will you really be my person? Will you join with me in what I'm doing in the world? And those times when the voice of the Lord comes to me, it scares me. There's a cost that comes with discipleship. There's a sacrifice that's involved. And for all of us, there is a, a inner Tarshish. There's a place that we just want to retreat to, to escape the holy, convicting, fearful, demanding, but good voice of the Lord that calls us into the center of his will. We're all tempted to flee the voice of the Lord when he comes to us. But the beginning of this story says to us, you can run, but you can't hide. You can flee the voice of the Lord, but he'll always pursue you. You can give up on God and run in the other direction, but he won't give up on you. His call, his desire for you, his love for you, his commitment to what he wants to do in and through you doesn't change. You can run, but you can't hide. And Jonah discovers that in this story. This story begins by saying to us, don't run from the voice of the Lord. You'll never be happy anyway. Tarshish is a lie. It's a fabrication. It's the devil's way of drawing us away from the voice of God. There's no joy in Tarshish. There's only joy found in cooperating with what God wants to do. This great storm brews up and the sailors, as I said, think that they're going to die. Now, when we get to uh, the end of chapter 1 and the narrator tells us about this terrible storm, it reminds me a lot of Acts chapter 27. Do you remember Acts chapter 27? Paul is headed west across the Mediterranean. A great storm brews up and it looks like Paul and the sailors are going to die. And then Paul falls on his knees and cries out to God. The two stories, the story of Jonah and the story of Paul in Acts chapter 27, are very similarly narrated. They're equally impressive in their length and in their detail. In both stories, the chief actor and the crew of the boat look like they're going to die. In both stories, we're drawn into the drama of the life that could be lost. But that's probably where the stories end. I mean, the similarity of the stories end. They're both headed west across the Mediterranean, but something quite different happens in those stories. In one story, Jonah is prayerless and independent. In the other story, Paul is prayerful and cries out to God. 
In one story, Jonah is still thinking that he's in control and trying to determine the outcomes of this fearful situation. In the other story, Paul knows that he's not in control. In one story, Jonah is the master of his own destiny, fleeing the voice of the Lord. In the other story, Paul is submitted completely to the voice of God. So there's similarities between these stories, but there's stark differences as well. Now, don't lose sight of the fact that Jonah was not a normal kind of prophet. Who can afford to buy a ticket to go to Spain from the Middle East? Only somebody who has money and means. See, we often think about prophets as these these um, animal skin wearing, honey drinking, locust eating, long haired, bearded, wild men of the desert. And many of the prophets might have been like that, but Jonah was not that kind of prophet. Jonah was the kind of prophet who had money, he had means, he had self-will and determination. He was a very, I mean the great thing about this story is it reminds us that God will use anybody, even somebody like Jonah, who in almost every moment of this story is unwilling to submit to the voice of the Lord. Jonah was self-willed. He was independent. He was always in control. Even in the middle of the storm, he turns to the people around him and he says to them, basically, I know what to do. Pick me up and throw me overboard and the storm will be calm. See, Jonah always knows what to do. That's Jonah. That's why it's so unusual that God would use someone like Jonah or someone like me. The voice of the Lord comes to Jonah, this self-willed, independent, rebellious man, and says, be my disciple, speak my word. But it's in the middle of the storm we discover who we really are. It's in the middle of the storm, Jonah remains independent. Jonah remains stubborn. But Paul is prayerful, dependent, relying upon God. I remember um, when we lost our third child in a late-term pregnancy. My wife and I, at that, at that point, had been married for about three years. Um, my wife tells her own story about her, her decade or more long struggle with anorexia. My wife struggled so, so deeply with eating disorders that throughout her teenage years, she was hospitalized. And she, she would tell that story and what all of that meant for her. But the problem, of course, with the eating disorder is that it played havoc with her body. And many times we tried uh, to get pregnant. And I remember when we lost our third late-term child and Felicity went into the hospital for an operation. And both of I remember her weeping and, and looking at me and saying, Graham, how could God do this to me again? How could this happen? And I remember that night clearly as she went into the hospital for the operation and as I knelt down on the grass in front of the hospital in Perth, weeping and crying and feeling utterly defeated. And that week I contacted, I was pastoring a church at the time, I contacted my church and I said to them, I'm not, I'm not interested in pastoring anymore. I'm not, that's it, I'm finished. How could God do this to Felicity again? How could this happen? 
How could he let her go through this kind of pain and loss again? Um, and for about, I think it was about three months, I didn't even turn up to church. And the great thing about our community, they really loved us. They, they walked with us. They cried with us. They, you know, they, they didn't give us any cheap or easy answers. They just spent time with us. They ate with us. They prayed. They wept. They were silent in our grief. And eventually they walked us through a process of healing. They were just the kind of community that we needed. But it was in that storm, it was in that pain and grief and loss and deep depression that I think Felicity and I discovered God afresh. See, it's only often in the storm that all-encompassing life-threatening storm where it feels like everything is being is lost everything you hope for everything you believe in everything you think you know the illusion of control is being ripped away from you where you discover who you really are before god you discover what kind of person am i and what is it that god really wants to do in my life paul in the storm acts a certain way and Jonah acts a different way. Now, the, the great thing about God is that no matter how we respond initially, at least in the storm, God is always loving us. He's always present for us. He's always there, providing us solace and comfort and care. Somehow, through our storm, Felicity and I found healing and the ability to hope and believe again. Where are you today? I don't know what kind of storm you might be in, but this story tells us that God is with us in the storm that we'll all go through. The story goes on that Jonah is picked up, he's thrown overboard into the water, he's swallowed by this great fish, and then he prays. Look at Jonah chapter 2. Look at the words of this prayer and notice that these words, this is a a psalm of lament. In fact, every, pretty much every word or every phrase at least in this prayer comes directly out of the psalms of lament. See, Jonah, like a lot of the other ancient Hebrews, was deeply schooled in the Psalms as the prayer book of the people of God. But listen to how he prays. Finally, he cries out to God. And remember that he's in the belly of the whale. He can't see his hand in front of his face. His nostrils are filled with the stench of the rotting corpses of the animals in the belly of the whale. The pressure is building up in his ears as the whale sinks into the depths of the ocean. He's suffocating. He can barely breathe. And he thinks to himself, this is where I die. This is it for me. And then he prays, this prayer. In my distress, I cried out to God and he answered me. From the depths of the realm of the dead, I cried out and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the seas. The currents swept about me. The waves broke over me. I've been banished from your sight. Yet I'll look again to your holy temple. The engulfing waves threatened me. The deep surrounded me. 
seaweed wrapped around my head. I thought, this is it. I'm finished. Yet when my life was ebbing away, I cried out to you. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God and they sing shouts of praise and he answers them. Jonah finally, in the belly of the whale, cries out to God. And look at how he prays. He says, when I felt like I was going to be overwhelmed, when the waves broke over me, I'm not a surfer, but I do a bit of body surfing, and probably about once a month I'll go down to um, go down to the beach and have a swim. And the thing about being a middle-aged man is you forget that you're not the physical specimen you once were. So the thing about middle-aged men in general, this won't be true of all middle-aged men here, so so just bear with me. We tend to imagine that we still are our twenty-year-old selves. And there are times when I'm, when I'm catching a huge set of waves and I, I've forgotten that I'm not quite as fit as I once was, not quite as strong as I once was. And I'm in the middle of a, a set of waves and wave after wave is crashing over me and I wonder whether I'm really out of my depth. You know those times, I don't know if you've been in those times where a huge wave will knock you over and smash you on the bottom of the, um, of the ocean floor and you'll reach up for breath and another wave will knock you down. And you'll reach up for breath and another wave will knock you down and you think to yourself, I really have bitten off more than I can chew. Actually, you're just, you're just struggling for air. Well, I've met so many people whose lives seem like that. You know, so many people when I'm, who I've been doing some counseling with, you wonder how can some, one person know so much pain and loss? It seems like life knocks them down and they come up for air and then they get knocked down by another huge wave and then they come up for air, struggling for air and another wave knocks them over and you think how can one person know so much grief? I was talking to an older lady recently who talked about the death of her son, the imprisonment of her husband, the loss of their business, her, her own battle with cancer. And it feels like just as she was struggling for air, another wave would knock her over. And in the dark night of the soul, where all seems that it's going to be lost, Jonah cries out to God. He finally prays. I've struggled most of my life probably, but I've been aware of it most acutely in my adulthood, with depression. Um, I've been through periods where I've been through serious medication because of my depression. And even now I'll go through periods with after a lot of psychological help and a lot of medication. Even now I'll go through periods where I struggle deeply with depression. There'll be there'll be days on end where I can barely get out of bed. I remember probably in my 30s, I don't think Felicity knew what she was getting in for when she married me, but in our 30s, there were times when my depression was so severe, I could, there were, there were days and days where I couldn't even leave the house. But somehow, you know, and in the middle of that deep depression, where I can't see any light at the end of the tunnel, somehow the presence of God the love of people around me breaks through and I can see some light. And Felicity will say to me, Graham, you've been here before. 
and you'll probably be here again. But we love you, and God loves you, and there is hope. Don't give up. It's in the dark night of the soul where we feel defeated and depressed, where we think all is going to be lost, that Jonah says to us, cry out to God. See, Jonah chapter 2 is a psalm of lament, and psalms of lament always follow the same trajectory. They start off with describing the lamentable situation. They start by saying, all looks like it's going to be lost, but they end with a word of hope, that in my distress, when all felt that it would be lost, when it looked like all was going to be ripped out of my life and I was going to die. Yet somehow God comes through and I was sing praises to him. You are good. Salvation comes from the Lord. Jonah chapter 2 says to us, when you feel like all is going to be lost and there is no hope at all, cry out to God and he will answer your prayers. And then Jonah chapter 3, Jonah is vomited up onto dry land. Now sometimes we think when God answers prayer, he's going to answer prayer in a certain kind of, sort of, we have a certain image in our mind. It's not really a romantic or idealized image, but we have a certain image of what an answer to prayer looks like. Jonah is vomited onto the beach by a whale. He's lying there in vomit. This is God's answer to his prayers. You know, this isn't your ideal answer to a prayer, but it's certainly better than rotting to death in the belly of the whale. Sometimes God's answer isn't quite what we imagined, but it's an answer nonetheless. And Jonah crawls him into Nineveh, preaching repentance. Now imagine Nineveh for a moment. I've, um, not that long ago, I was spending time in India. And you know, when you, you walk, those of you that have been in parts of Asia, you know, sometimes you'll go, you'll walk down streets and you'll see these great temples. You'll smell the incense. You'll see religious leaders dressed in all kinds of orange or religious garb. Nineveh was like that, this deeply religious city. There were Probably at least three kinds of people who had power in Nineveh. Probably four kinds of people, actually. There were the military leaders, because the the Ninevites were a military civilization. There were the nobles. Uh, There were the wealthy traders. But there were also the religious leaders, who had a lot of power. Nineveh was a deeply religious city. When you would walk down the streets, everywhere you would look, people would be praying and worshipping. Incense would fill your nose. You would see all of these spires built to the heavens in the worship of the gods. They were deeply religious. But the word of the Lord comes through Jonah to Nineveh and says, Yet forty days, yet forty days, and I will destroy you. Because you are not worshipping the true God. See, Nineveh had domesticated God. They had shaped God in their own image. They had made him a violent, greedy, vindictive, sexualized God. And the word of the Lord comes through Jonah and says, I am Yahweh. I am not the God that you worship. 
and in 40 days I will destroy you. See, I think the word of the Lord comes to you and I and comes to our culture exactly the same way. The new gods are the same as the old gods. They've just taken different form. The gods of greed and violence, of sex and wealth, the gods of ambition, all of those gods are the same. They just take on different form. And the voice of the Lord comes and says, yet 40 days and I will destroy you. And don't miss the symbolism of the yet 40 days. Um, this morning I was listing, how many times does this actually come up in Scripture? Because if it comes up over and over again, it must have meaning. The 40 days of, in Noah's Ark was a time of purging away and cleansing the sin of moral pollution and bringing back restoration to God. The 40 years in the wilderness was a testing period. The 40, 40 days of Elijah's run from Jezebel. The 40 days of Jesus' temptation was a time of probing his nature and intent and bringing him back in the power of the Spirit. The 40 days of Jesus' resurrection appearances was an important time of purifying the church. So this image comes up over and over and again, and it always means the same thing. When the voice of the Lord comes to an individual or a people and says, yet 40 days, it means it's a time of repentance. Sorry. It's a time when the voice of the Lord calls us to repent, to let go, to give up, to pursue God. And we have a choice. Either we become hard of heart and we resist the voice of the Lord and his destruction, his judgment is upon us, or we decide to repent and let go and renewal and restoration and hope comes through. When yet 40 days comes to us, it only has two options, leaves us with two options. Now, when I read these words, I actually feel a bit nervous because this sounds a lot like the way that Jesus spoke to the religious leaders. He basically said to them, yet 40 days. You're a very religious people. You sing the right songs. You go to the right religious services. You give your money to the to the uh, religious institutions. You memorize the sacred texts of the pagan gods. You're deeply religious by all accounts. But Jesus said to the Pharisees and Sadducees, but you are not God's people. You don't know Yahweh at all. And I get nervous because if anyone looks like an ancient Pharisee, it's me. It's a theological lecturer, a Bible college lecturer, devoted to the religious institution, a scholar in the ancient texts, committed to, you know, whatever. I look like the Pharisees. And when Jesus calls them to repent, he calls me to repent. He says, Graham, do you really know me? Do you know my love? Do you know my grace? Are you familiar with my holiness? Have you domesticated me? Have you shaped me in your own image? Do I look like the gods, the ancient and the modern gods? What kind of God am I to you? Are you really my disciple? The voice of the Lord comes to me and it comes to you and says, yet 40 days. And we can decide to be hard of heart, resist God, 
and then suffer the consequences because God is a holy God, a God of truth and righteousness and justice and judgment. Or we can decide to let go, to repent and know the love and the grace, the redemption, renewal, the righteousness and joy, the liberation that God brings yet 40 days. Nineveh decides to repent and then God relents and does a new thing in them, just as he does. I mean, the great uh, amongst the people of Israel and amongst his church, what I love about this story is you see God working in the Ninevites. These aren't even the Hebrews, but God is a God of the nations, a God of Australia, the God of Nineveh, and the God of the people of Israel. Nineveh repents, and God relents, and Jonah, Jonah has this huge dummy spit. He says, come on, this is exactly what I said. This is why I went to Tarshish. Because you're gracious and holy, you're forgiving and abounding in love. It's like he's accusing God of being too nice. You know, come on. Now you and I know that Jonah is is rewriting history at this moment. He didn't run off to Tarshish because God is gracious and loving. He ran off to Tarshish because he's rebellious. He's rewriting the story and he's saying, I can't believe it. This is just like you. People repent and you love them and you forgive them. I wish I could die. He walks out into the desert. He sits under a tree and he looks out over Nineveh, hoping, still hoping that God will destroy them. And then he falls asleep. The story goes on that God grows a vine over his head to give him shade. And then God sends a worm that eats the vine and it dies. And he wakes up in the beating Mediterranean sun and he says, I wish I could die. I wish I was dead. Could anything get any worse than this? See, Jonah still is at the center of Jonah's story in his mind. He still doesn't realize that this is not about him. And this isn't his story. This is the story of God. He says, I wish I could die. And the voice of the Lord comes to Jonah and says, Jonah, you still don't know me. You're a prophet. You're my man, but you still don't know me. Did you tend this plant? Did you water it and make it grow? Did you nurture it? And yet you care more about this plant than the people of Nineveh. There are 120,000 people in Nineveh and they don't know their right hand from their left. Shouldn't I love them? Shouldn't I care about them? Shouldn't my heart break for them? Shouldn't I respond to their repentance? See, Jonah is suffering from a, from a, a poverty of spirit, a meanness of heart. His vision of God is too small and too narrow. He still doesn't see God. He discovers God under the unpredictable plant. God is showing himself to Jonah afresh. The large, unpredictable, expansive, gracious, holy, missionary God who is doing something in the world that's bigger than you and I could ever imagine. 
Jonah's vision of God is way too small. Jonah's image of how God should act is way too limited. Jonah is about to discover that this is a God that he thought he knew, but he knows nothing of. Jonah's also discover that he's being drawn into a story, a remarkable story that began before the creation of the world, that walked through the story of, the, of, the, of biblical Israel into the redemptive death and resurrection, resurrection of Christ through the early church and the modern church into the final age. This is a dramatic story that Jonah is a part of and that you're a, you and I are a part of that's much bigger than us and that we are called into. See, this story calls us into that will, God's will. It says to me, Graham, do you really know me? You think you know me. But do you really know me? I think you, I think I'm too small in your mind. I want to expand your mind. I want to enlarge your heart. I want to ignite your passion. I want to renew your imagination. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Jonah come, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah and it comes to you and me. Now, when I get to the end of this story, I'm perplexed by the way that it finishes. Notice that Jonah chapter 4 verse 11 finishes on a question. The voice of the Lord comes to Jonah and says, there are 120,000 people who don't know their right hand from their left. Shouldn't I care about them? And then it finishes. When I first read this story, I thought to myself, that's no way to end a story. You don't just leave it hanging. I mean, I don't know what kind of storyteller this narrator was, but you drive home a good story. Bring it to a strong conclusion. Don't leave it hanging on a question. But then I realized that this is meant to be a question that resonates throughout the ages. It's a question to you. It's a question to me. It's a question to Jonah, to the ancient Hebrews, to the early church and to the modern church. It's a question that is directed at us. Will you be mine? Will you join with me? I want to do something in and through you that's bigger than you in my plan to restore and recreate all of creation. This question is directed at us. See, the story of Jonah isn't just some ancient, irrelevant story. It's your story and my story. It's our collective story. It tells us we can run, but we can't hide. When we're in the middle of the storm, that God is there for us. In the dark night of the soul, where we feel like all is going to be lost, and we can't see a hand in front of our face. In the belly of the whale, cry out to God and he will answer. When we've domesticated God and shaped him after our own religious imagination, God wants to break through and show himself to us afresh. And then he wants to enlarge our spirit and help us join with him, the compassionate, gracious, holy and just God who is restoring all creation in Jesus' name. Amen.
Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we listen to this story, and we hear your voice to us, calling us to discipleship. Ignite in our hearts a new passion. Renew our imagination. Restore our first love. Birth in us a fresh desire to be yours, to be your disciples. I pray that not only us individually, but Dural Baptist Church would know your power, your presence, your provision, your grace to join with you in what you are doing in the world. In Jesus' name, amen.